Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. It is the 1st of July, therefore, if I wasn't sitting here with Lockie waffling about the First World War, something would be wrong, wouldn't it, Lockie? But who is here with us? Yeah, too right. Um, we've got, uh, I want to say, uh, a heavyweight. We've got the um, we've got the, the First World War historian equivalent of, of Lennox Lewis um, with us, Professor Peter Doyle uh, is in the house. Um, I, I, we're going we're gonna to talk about New Army stuff. I think my favourite stuff that you do is geology. Uh, stuff if I'm allowed to say that actually prof how are you I'm good and you are allowed to say that um and thank you very much for getting my book quoted up there you know with the heavyweights as you say but um that's not just what I do and this is what I do too this stuff about Kitchener's mob which I absolutely yep. adore, so. um and if you are a layman listening in world war one and the idea of a huge thick book uh, with lots of writing and footnotes scares the shit out of you then go and buy a professor peter doyle book because prof doesn't do that prof things are very led by prof you're obsessed with stuff aren't you you love artifacts and visual and your books are stuffed full of beautiful photography and they're they're a great access to the first world war aren't they oh in, in my view yeah and i mean i think stuff is important um we, we, we could call it material culture if you want and that's a posh way of thinking that every bit of stuff stuff is a recording device in its own right you know you look at it you think what happened to this every time you post anything you know like a medal or a picture of a soldier on social media somebody's going to say i wish i hope that guy survived and what they're doing is they're projecting that they're thinking well what is his story what is the story behind this and so that's what i try to do uh, throughout so all of my books have to be visual have to have those things in there because i know the words are really important absolutely significantly important but really the pictures they just make it yeah and you have just vindicated every idiot that listens to us and us two idiots as well who can't stop buying crap on ebay it's material culture i had to save it yeah just just call it material culture you know just don't don't get into the position where when it arrives you have to sneak it in the house oh lucky's already there that's definitely true. I, I was totally, totally busted last week when the naval and military press uh, ordered just a big box of books arrived when I wasn't at home. Um, the text I'm messages fly in. They're only two pound each. They're only two yeah. pound each. <laughs> Couldn't not. I've had it for ages. Yeah, yeah, no, I've had that for ages. Right. Okay. We are going to talk about a book of yours. We will wax lyrical at the end about what's about to come out because that's very exciting. But we're going to talk about a book you did called Kitchener's Mob, which looked at the fact that all of those guys who rushed to enlist, supposedly, and joined those big queues that you see photos of, 
had by the middle of 1916 made up a, a large portion of the men sitting waiting to go over the top on the 1st of July. And this book connected that. It said it explained their journey and how they got there. So Lockie and I thought it would be a really good one to do with you. I guess we need some context at the beginning because I don't think necessarily laymen understand. Where did these men go? There are three different components, aren't there? There are regulars in the army in 1914, there are territorials, and then where did these men go? I think that's an important distinction to start with. Absolutely. So you think about the British army in 1914 and you think about a very highly trained army, very well equipped. And this is it's almost a mythology now, you know, the beginning of the war, you have uh, a very, very well-trained regular army. These men are hard-bitten. You know, they've been through everything. They've developed their own slang. They understand what happens uh, across the empire. And they're there to do one job and one job only. And a soldier, which, of course, ultimately means to fire their guns at the enemy. So those are a very hard-bitten and well-trained army. So in addition to that, there's the territorials. So the regular army were, was based on a whole series of uh, battalions of regiments which are distributed across the country and they have individual battalions. That means about a thousand men uh, in, in those battalions. And so you see the first and the second battalions of these county regiments like the Devonshire Regiment or the Suffolk Regiment. These are going to be these, these guys who have served across the empire. You know, they may be serving in India some serving at home, and, uh, you know we, we know, we know where they are. That's kind of similar to our own regular army right now. The territorials, well, they were derived in, or uh, put all together in 1908. It was sort of said, right, we've got all these volunteers, uh, rifle volunteers, which were set up to really defend against the French. The French were always a traditional enemy, and they were always worrying about French invasions, and so various concerned citizens raised rifle battalions to think, great, you know, we'll, we'll be there if the French have arrived. But it was a bit of a mess. So in 1908, uh, we see some reforms that say, right, we'll make something called the territorial force. You know, we'll get those guys and we'll append them, we'll stick them onto our county regiments. So that means you have first and second battalions, most regiments are regular troops. And then you have a third battalion, which is a special reserve, and that's to sort of train people up. And then beyond that, fourth and fifth battalions, maybe a few more, are going to be your territorials. And those lads are known as the Saturday Night Soldiers. So what they do is they go along to a drill hall, which used to be across the country on a Saturday night, used to train a little bit with their arms. They would go out into the, into the field in uh, the summer and, you know, uh, I was going to say ponce around, but anyway, march around and paint uh, blocks of stone white and make their tents look nice and so on. And these were, these men were directly uh, enlisted in order to protect the country from invasion or basically home defence. That's what they were about. Now, they could also uh, volunteer to serve overseas, something called the Imperial Service Commitment. They could say, yeah, yeah, uh, in the time of war, we'll be happy to serve overseas. So you've got the regulars and you've got the territorials. Right, well, so what's happening is um, you have war declared, right, and you suddenly realise... Prime Minister realises, hold on a minute, I haven't got a Secretary of State for war. That's because of a slight difficulty in Ireland that they had, uh, all down to the senior uh, soldiers getting into themselves and sort of possible bother. But they didn't have a Secretary of State for war. So Asquith's thinking, right, who are we going to call? Okay, so why don't we call a figurehead? A man known for his moustache, his steely eyes, stares, and the fact that he gets the job done. So they bring in... 
Lord Kitchener. And Kitchener, oh, man. Yeah, the man himself, Kitchener. Um, Kitchener, the man, Kitchener, the poster, Kitchener, the moustache, and Kitchener, Kitchener, the squint, which is very important to, uh, to identify the fact that the reason why his eyes follow you around is because one's home and one's away. So uh, that's yeah. what's going on. That was sand damage, wasn't it? Or, and light damage as well, desert. It was. Absolutely right, uh, Alex. And I think um, the guy himself, imposing figure, you know, big lad, and uh, obviously looks good in the uniform and inspires confidence. But he's more than that. You know, he's more than just a uniform, uh, a reputation and a moustache. He, he's somebody who understands the business of warfare and he understands that if Britain is going to do its job, it will need an army of millions. That's what, that's what he says. He knows that the, the war is going to go on for longer than, you know, six months. He knows it's going to go on for years. And he knows that if we are going to stand by our commitments that are made in you know, 1914, then we need an army of millions. So he sets about thinking, right, what am I going to do? Now, one of the things I like about him is he's a bit impatient. I kind of like those impetuous people. Yeah. You know those kind of people, Alex. He also, like, he hates red tape, which I'm totally down with, isn't? doesn't he, Lockie? He's just like, I, I don't want anyone in my way. I want to get from A to B. This is like me and Beth with a great war group. We've got an A, we've got a B, and just don't get in our way because that's what we want to do next. Yeah, it's rather unfortunate he was in Westminster uh, then. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he'd rather have been, you know, careering around Africa or, or, or somewhere like yeah. that. I mean, I've made the point in my book that the reason George V doesn't need to go and postulate like Willie does and Nicholas does um, in Russia and Germany is because Kitchener fulfills that role. That's how big a deal he is to the British public. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think all of the things that you discussed is absolutely right. You know, it was fortunate that he was there. So great. Who are you going to call? Well, he happens to be uh, on leave. So uh, not anymore. You're going to be the Secretary of State. He's not a politician. Secondly, you know, he hates red tape. I mean, I think that's why uh, these are non-traditional and perhaps slightly out of favour characters. But for people like Churchill and Kitchener are people who are impatient with stuff and want to get stuff done. And you kind of need that. So Kitchener himself, impatient, not going to muck about, scares the living daylights out of all of his generals and says, what we're going to do is we're going to raise an army, a separate army. Now, it's really interesting. His chief of staff is saying, hold on a minute. Um, well, what are you going to do with these men? So he says, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call, go straight to the public. I'm going to go straight there. going to say, right, uh, men on the street, it's about time that, you know, you joined your country's army. And he, he's directly uh, getting to their hearts and minds. And he's, he's not faffing about with the territorials because the territorials are organized on a county basis with a county association. Probably, you know, guys with pipes and tweed and stuff. Is it not, is it not a bit of a mad thing to do to, to suddenly, you know, you've got, you've got the terri territorial force there and there's a potential mechanism at least for expansion because the territorial force is quite an open-ended thing, mm. isn't it? To, to then create a whole new mechanism to bring in a load of untrained blokes. Is that is that not insane? It is, isn't it, Pete? But it also means it's all entirely on his terms. It's, it's all of those things. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It is crazy and it's genius in the same way. It's, he's, he's, when asked about it, well, you know, these men need some kind of identity. Don't care about that. Well, don't they need a cat match? Don't care about that. What about the uniform? We'll worry about that later. It's, it's very much like that. What he didn't want to do is have some crusty territorial association committee saying, mm, I'm not sure. Oh, what about that? I mean, these are very, very worthy individuals. And they've, you know, they, the let's not forget, 
territorial force raised, you know, a huge body of men who served overseas, who served in all fronts, and who, you know, burgeoned the war as we went through. You know, they were they were at the cutting edge of that. But for in 1914, we're looking at the hard-bitten regulars, the territorials who are not quite being deployed. They are at the end of 1914, and they're being deployed into first deep. And we're looking at, you know, some really interesting battalions, London Scottish and all those kind of guys going overseas. But the pretty, pretty much Kitchener saying, no, I want it directly uh, recruited into what he called the regular army. So he made, therefore, the new army and everybody else had to pick up the pieces around him. Was it crazy? Possibly. But it meant that you got millions of men arriving, you know, thousands of men arriving. And what he decided to do was to apply to uh, government to say, right, we propose 100,000 men tranches and we will join those to build up to a million men uh, in order to create the new army. And that brings with it, as you said, Andy, this is a bit of a crazy world because how the hell are you going to train these guys? It's a, li a very, very small scale thing. It's like when they decided in the Second World War in 1940 to raise uh, Dad's army, to raise the Home Guard. And they kind of said, right, well, we need this, so we're going to have it. This is Kitchener, Kitchener and Churchill. We're going to have one of those things. Uh, people turn up with no idea what to do, no idea where to go, no idea what they're going to be doing, but they come with, you know, uh, the power to make a difference. Probably many of those men that joined the Home Guard were also men who served in Kitchener's army. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Before we go on to their training and stuff, and I'll get lucky yeah. to, like, pose a question out of it, um, mm. my favourite Kitchener anecdote about him getting frustrated with Fred Tate, right? So they sit down around a table, this committee. Can you imagine Kitchener being told he's got to report to a committee to decide what the ribbon looks like on the military cross, right? So he's got the hump already that he's got to go and sit in this meeting. And Fritz Ponsonby, the king's private, well, he's like the control, financial controller of the king's household, but he's one of the king's men, uh, is the royal representative, decides to punk Kitchener by turning up with this massive, Peter Doyle style photographic encyclopedia of medal ribbons from around the world so every time someone says well let's go for like a red and yellow cross he'd go uh well no actually sorry Kitchener that's the order of the pigeon from Macedonia and you can't have that and Kitchener would be like right okay something else and someone would go what about like a green and purple and he'd go oh no sorry that's like the order of Saint Sebastian from this country and it wouldn't be allowed and it went on for hours and you can just picture Kitchener going purple with rage until the point where he just goes just make it black and white and Fritz Ponsonby goes sorry that's the Paula Marie you can't have that either that's German <laughs> it's just and it goes on for hours and the whole the whole thing is orchestrated around the fact that Fritz Ponsonby's wife had mocked up a purple and white one and he just tossed it on the top of the basket and went oh that one works and Kitchener went fine just use that one use that one so yeah like it Wonderful ribbon. Yeah. How does it work? I mean, because ideally, the, the guys you want training them are your experienced kind of pre-war regulars. The trouble is they've just all gone off to France and are suffering quite heavy casualties. Um, so so how does it work? How does how does the training get going? Well, can I t I'll just step back from that slightly, if you don't mind, because one thing we haven't resolved, and I, I, sh I probably should have done, it's the fact that we all of these guys are turning up untrained, as you're saying, Andy, and they are they're outside the recruiting office. And one of the mythologies of it is that right from the beginning, you know, right from the 
the get-go, the men are turning up and bear in mind that Kitchener had made his announcements on the 8th of August, just a few days after the, after the opening of the war, to get more men in. And they, there was a huge advertising campaign. So Hedley Labas, who is uh, a god of advertising and probably re really invented it, created this Your Country Needs You campaign. And so that is driving people to the recruiting office. One thing that's really interesting about this recruitment drive is that in the early stages, you're getting everybody and their dog turning up at the recruiting office in dribs and drabs. And you're getting, uh, to use the language today, men of all classes. So you're getting, you know, tramps, you're getting uh, working men, men out of work, um, you know, somebody with a, a social conscience, a guy with a boater, a guy with a flat cap, a guy with a Homburg, and they're going to all turn up on this particular day. And those, those, are, those are the first ones that are going to be arriving. Um, so that means that as we, get, as we get those lads arriving, so we are uh, identifying the fact that they, something needs to be done to train them. And um, the, the thinking behind it is, well, uh, you know, as you say, where are all of the trainers? Where are all of the, uh, the men who can do this? Because the, the regulars, 1st and 2nd Battalions, the Special Reserve that would have been the natural home for men joining that, these are all based at the depots. And, of course, most of those men are now overseas and the Special Reserve is very small. So you've now got uh, men arriving and they are put into tranches of 100,000 and they're known as K1, first 100,000, K2, second 100,000. And they, they are being uh, delivered at certain times. So the first tranche, you know, it, from the announcement 8th of, of August onwards. And so as those men arrive, they are then assigned to a battalion. So they will arrive at the recruiting depot or the recruiting office and they'll be assigned to, you know, whatever the 6th Battalion, Oxford and Books Light Infantry or whatever it would be. No real concern about regimental tradition, just that they happen to be uh, in the local environment uh, and they are therefore joining that particular battalion. And so those men become part of, of a faceless part of Kitchener's army because Kitchener's army, as it was known at the time, is now seen as, oh, the Pals battalions. It's not like that. In the first days, these are a group of individuals who are joining up for their own reasons and are thrown into a battalion together and then they, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to be drilling in their, uh, you know, in their ordinary clothes. And who's going to be drilling them, which is the question that you really originally asked. Anybody that they could find. So it would be uh, Marine sergeants, who would probably be quite scary. Um, there would also be retired sergeants and there would be others like the NCOs. And so Kitchen, not only through Sir Hedley Labasse, not only was trying to recruit into the army, men who had no military experience. They were also trying to drag back into the army, kind of dugouts, men who as uh, who had served as NCOs or, you know, had served long-term serving men, and those were being brought back in, men who'd, who'd retired out of the army and weren't even on reservists. And so that would mean you'd get all kinds of crusty individuals. Uh, you'd also get redeployment of men from the Indian army who happened to be in the UK at that time. Uh, much to the disappointment, I guess, of the Indian Army itself. And so you get a hodgepodge of men with a hodgepodge of, of um, experiences and a hodgepodge of things to drill them with. So you can see it was a pretty mammoth task because you're not only going to have to drill them, you're going to have to house them, uniform them, equip them. Uh, and as you said, Andy, from the beginning, wouldn't it have been better to go through the K-1 
county associations, maybe there would have been a supply chain. Uh, well, obviously not. These these men were drilling in all fields, all places, with all kinds of things, uh, with all kinds of and different types of drill sergeants in front of them. It was kind of a scary proposition to send those out to France, <laughs> if you think about it. So let's, I mean, let's talk about pals then for a second. I mean, you know, the, these guys are not all just pals, are they? And, you know, there's, I think there's certain battalions in particular that if you if you called them pals, they'd have stuck their noses up and, uh, you know, they, they, like 11th Suffolk's, for example, don't call them the Cambridge pals. Um, 12th York and Lanks are the, are the, are the yeah, the, the Sheffield City Battalion, don't call them pals. Um, either so um was there kind of any rivalry between these battalions or, or or ill will or snobbery at all oh hugely and i think um i think even strictly speaking all of those are pals battalions um in the in our current powerlands even though the lads at the time wouldn't want to hit me here and that the, the distinction is is that the men who joined k1 and k2 who were just thrown into, you know, the next battalion. Because as soon as they filled up a battalion, a thousand men, they then built up another thousand men. So, you know, you'd have the six battalion uh, Oxen Books and then you'd have the seven battalion Oxen Books. They don't have any fancy names. They don't have anything other than the six battalion, seven battalion, eight battalion. And these men uh, get the, use the phraseology shitty under the stick because they are overlooked. They don't get any patronage. They don't get any fancy gifts. They don't get, they don't get a fancy uniform. They get a really like scuzzy uniform, a uniform that was designed simply to, to make them look reasonably uniform. But Kipling described it as some kind of, you know, hideous slops. Um, and there were sort of sack coats in blue. And this was all stuff. As soon as the, the idea of the Pals Battalions raised, uh, has raised the idea of the Pals Battalions and the idea of separation, it is 100% down to social class, 100%. So, I mean, if I read, read for you here just the thing that was in the Liverpool Daily Post in uh, late August, and it says here, this is the, the headlines, Powell's first battalion complete, full number obtained in an hour, stirring scenes, great rally of Liverpool's young businessmen, no undesirables. So this is the thing. What's uh, happening here is that recruiting is being identified with specific social classes. And that was Henry Rawlinson came up, who's a director of recruiting, came up with the idea in earlier on in August to, to derive a battalion of stockbrokers, basically men who worked in the city of London, um, because it was uh, essential that men of the same social class serve together. And I think what uh, Lord Derby, who was the originator of the Liverpool Pals, first of the Pals battalions, because the stockbrokers became part of K. K2 or one of those, K2, yeah. Um, I mean, what, what Darby is saying, you know, this is him writing on the 27th of August, it's been suggested to me that there are many men, such as clerks and others engaged in commercial business who wish to serve their country, who would be willing to enlist in a battalion of Kitchener's new army if they felt assured that they would not be able to serve, who would be sure they would be able to serve with their friends and not be put in a battalion with unknown men as their companions. What he means is dockers, builders, um, what we might call ragasses, uh, people who are in effect, um, you know, of a lower social standing and class. And therefore, you look at the Pals Battalions, I'm afraid, much as it is a, a beautiful 
story and a nice idea. The vast majority of them are based on social class. And I think that's what you get when you see the proliferation of the palace battalions or, you know, the city battalion in, in for example, in Sheffield. That's all about city men. Okay, they're the men from the, from the city, from the commercial classes, uh, commercial houses. And it's easy for us to stick, for me anyway, to sit here and think, oh, you know, this is all about social class and social snobbery. But we have to put ourselves into the context of the time. These men are worlds apart. You know, they probably wouldn't want to join with those uh, individuals and they probably wouldn't wish to serve with them. And what's really interesting is the... As then the whole pals phenomenon and this sort of join together with people you know to serve together with people you know idea builds on, you can see how it changes a bit. The Accrington pals is a really good example. Accrington, obviously a small town, Lancashire mill town, all the rest of that. Um, they try to compete with the big boys, you know, people like Birmingham, uh, Manchester, and Leeds, who had the backing of their mayors, who poured huge amounts of money into it you know new the, the the hideous slops that we talked about in terms of uniforms they didn't do that they got absolutely sterling top quality tailored uniforms in birmingham for example in manchester you know again they were we're talking about the the cream of the crop in terms of what they were using but in accrington now it's kind of trying to build up its through patriotic reasons try to build up a similar kind of palace battalion calling upon other little towns chorley and other places places around them Unfortunately, um, you know, they couldn't do that. And they were, they were really were men out of work and other things. So my model, the idea of the snobbery doesn't always work. And you're going to get people who are joining for a variety of reasons. Uh, but if you think about those ones, the big industrial cities or the big, big Edwardian city uh, types, they're all based on this. And that's a fascinating thing. They want the best for their men. Um, and they're competing. Bradford with Leeds, absolute top competition to get the best. These men were treated like chocolate box soldiers. You know, they were given all manner of things. And this, to be honest, makes it even the more sad what happens to them. That's incredible. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Can we just quickly, you've mentioned some forgotten men, and Lockie and I both have touched on in research. Um, you get kind of PALS units and this kind of recruitment within core as well. Like the 156 of the RFA is essentially a PALS artillery unit for Peckham. And Lockie, you've got one as well, haven't you? Yeah, the, the, we've got some um, Royal Garrison artillery units because um, we're quite close to the Woolwich uh, Arsenal and Barracks here in Plumstead. So, yeah, they recruit into the heavy artillery around us. Do they have the same feel to them? And this is a fantastic question because this is absolutely right. I've, I've said in my book, uh, these are kind of like, if there's any forgotten men, these are the men. Because you, you, you can't just have uh, a battalion of infantry. You know, you've got to have, if you're going to build that up into a, into a brigade and then into a division, you know, the grouping together of those men to create a, a fighting force that can go out in the field, you need everybody else. You need the Army Service Corps. You need the artillery, absolutely. You need the engineers. You need the medical corps. These are also Kitchener's men. They're joining up. 
Um, they are forgotten about in many ways. They're not talked about in terms of palace units, but they are volunteers. And some of them are, you know, like the K1 and K2, that's the guys that turned up at Woolwich or Chatham. And those are the men who are joining those particular units, um, specialist areas. And then you do get those which are individually raised, like Lord Derby, um, again, raising the Liverpool Pals and also Manchester Pals and also various other Lancashire-based um, artillery units, which are kind of PALS units, but are forgotten, you know, in that sense. Then they joined up together to serve together, um, and they are very identifiable with that particular part of the world, um, but they are not ever thought of as Kitchener's Army. They're just seen as those random, you know, guys that shoot, uh, shoot uh, big bullets from big guns. You know, it's it's a completely different world for them. And I think, I think it, there's more nuance, more detail to be picked out from Kitchener's Army. It is now overpowered by the PAL story. But bear in mind, those first men, you know, the K1 men, they're the men that start to serve in Gallipoli and Egypt and, you know, and also at Luce or Luce. Um, those are men who are the first in the field and they, they get out there in 1915. So the K1 is, is out there serving and fighting at that time. So they're largely not thought of as, um, as Kitchener's army in the same way as the Pulse Battalions are. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I've just got kind of one question just to kind of maybe finish off on recruitment. Yeah. Um, it's it, it kind of, we talked about Lord Derby, uh, we talked about Henry Rawlinson, you talk about kind of the local actions, yeah. but I mean, the famous, the famous kind of image from recruitment is that poster, isn't it? It's, it's the pointing finger and the big moustache and it's you. Um, where, 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 does, where does that come into it? Was that a big driver? I think one of the, one of the really interesting things, uh, I, was, I was on holiday somewhere hot, and there was a, a storm erupted on social media and in the news that said that that poster didn't exist. Um, now, well, I think what they said was the impact of that didn't exist or that the one that we imagined we think didn't exist. Well, uh, none of that. Either that or it was that mad Turkish guy on Twitter that thinks um, Gallipoli never happened. He's, he's good value. He is very good value. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, and that's great. And I'm, I'm waiting for the aliens to arrive and the, and the flying saucers and all and Elvis. Yeah, you know, I'd open up a face in a golden glow and all of that. But um, I think I think the thing with it is, did it have a driver? Well, probably. And people do make a reference to it. 
The fact of the matter is, is that there are a number of photographs in Ulster, for example, in Chester Railway Station, showing that poster plastered on the wall. And you can see it in the recruiting, um, recruiting posters everywhere. One of the things that we're also seeing is that Kitchener was a very, very powerful figure, as we've already discussed. And I think um, I do know that the Kitchener poster with the pointing finger in your country needs to exist because I possess one. So it's the, the fact is, or the challenge here is, do these things or were these things widely distributed? And that's one of the big questions. I think the Parliamentary Recruiting Committee, which was uh, a obviously parliamentary cross-party group in order to try and drive recruiting, had a huge uh, publicity machine with millions, literally, I think something like 13 million posters produced for this. And so although Kitchener's pointing finger was not part of that, it was a separate initiative, uh, it formed in people's minds a significant component of it. It was definitely used. And there were other Kitchener posters as well. And Kitchener's image, his image of your country needs you and the point about, you know, your king, your king and country needs you, um, God save the king, is a very significant message. And that was derived by Sir Hedley Labasse, um, the ace of, uh, of advertising, who uh, also has a part to play in my future book, uh, which we can talk about. But um, it, it, I, think, I think it's easy to poo-poo. Easy to say it didn't exist. It certainly did. It's appearing in a number of photographs. It had an impact. People referred to it. And Kitchen's image was sufficient to drive men into, into the army. So the, that was his power. All right. Let's, let's talk about getting them into action yeah. um, then. Because, I mean, 1915, we, we, we see, you know, these new army divisions as they're, as they're, as they're formed and, and they go into action. Uh, I, I guess it's fair to say 1915 is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, for them in terms of performance because you have some you have some good and you have some not so good I mean from the good side of things I'm thinking maybe kind of 15th division at, at lose and then kind of in the days that follow you have the sort of 21st division and, and, and the reserves come in and it's it's less of a happy story um, should we talk about that sure I mean I think um, it's really interesting what's happening these men are now being distributed across so the first to be trained and the th thing that a lot of people ask me when I've given talks is, of course, these men weren't trained, were they? Of course they were trained. You know, <laughs> of course they were trained. I mean, they, they joined at the end of 1914 and they're going out a year later in 1915. These are the advanced party. Now, whether or not they're trained for trench warfare is another matter, but they are certainly trained to the exacting standards of the army drill book, um, of, the, of the musketry requirements and so on and so forth. But these are, these are still men who have not had any experience of combat or experience of soldiering, which is what the regulars had. So those men then um, are sent out, the first to go, uh, the ninth Scottish Division, and then we can see others that are, you know, proceeding overseas. We see the 10th and the 11th go to, to Gallipoli. And, we, and the thing about Gallipoli, the interesting thing is the huge mythology that associated with, with Gallipoli is, of course, that only uh, the Anzacs did anything and only they were supermen and so on. My, the research that I've done shows that the average Anzac was five foot six and the average uh, ordinary soldier from the UK was something like five foot five. So there you go, this is superman. But whether or not this is a, a big issue is uh, irrelevant. These men are arriving untrained and they're being forced into a hellhole of Suvla Bay it's a hellhole because of the, the fact that they haven't got sufficient 
supply lines, uh, water supply, they haven't got sufficient general shift, they don't know what they're doing in terms of being derived and being pushed up. So it is a mixed bag. Those men fought, you know, as heroically as anybody else and suffered as badly as anybody else. But of course, the general feeling is that the new army in Gallipoli didn't do so well. And that's promulgated by the fact that the men who had served there, you know, terribly, uh, under terrible conditions like the Anzacs and the men in the 29th Division, uh, we're seeing young fellows who are arriving with no experience. And the same applies in uh, Lewis or Luz. Um, we're seeing there the 15th, as you say, uh, incredibly important division. All of those men who are arriving in France go through the base. Um, they're, they're facing up probably with wounded um, sergeants and drill sergeants who or men who know what it's like at the front end of the sharp end and they're suddenly propelled into you know we've got to get real now here on the uh, the dunes of La Havre or you know in in those places and then you go you go from there to the front line where they're getting some level of acclimatization but that all that doesn't happen with it happens for the 15th but it doesn't happen with those other four benighted guys that arrive late on and uh, committed to the Battle of Luz because, um, of course, Lord French was, mm, should we, should we, I don't really want to do that. I'm not sure. And they had to, they had to march, you know, through or well, overnight and then they had to arrive in the trenches and then they had to attack. And it's no wonder that they, they really didn't uh, manage to succeed and carried with them a legacy of, um, you know, of failure, which is really unfair and really not appropriate. Um, I think in the light of their, their further actions in the later part of the war, uh, those stains, such as they were, were erased. But these are men who had been trained, not trained sufficiently in or acclimatized sufficiently to the actual business of warfare. Because as we, uh, we were just talking before we actually went live with this, can you imagine that you've taken a man from whatever walk of life they are, whether they be a hard-bitten miner, through to uh, a clerk in an office. And what you're asking them to do is to fire a gun and stick a bayonet in another man's body. Now that cannot be something that is in any way easy to do or thought about in any way to be um, a simple job. It is something that takes a little bit of mental uh, capacity to consider. And I think if you've been marched all the way through the night, you've been forced into action and you've no idea what's going on, uh, how would we react? I know how I would. So I think, I think, yeah, it was a mixed, it was a mixed bag, but in all those cases, those men were going into really difficult positions, whether it be in Egypt, whether it be in uh, Gallipoli, or whether it be at Luce, for sure. Okay, well, so, I mean, if, if most of them at least get out in 1915, then by the time of, you know, July 1916 and, and the kind of at least the prep for the Somme Offensive, most of these new army battalions, divisions, will at least have, have seen a German by, by this stage is, is the hope. So the idea that they're completely new and, and fresh off the boat when they step into the line opposite Tietval or Serre or, or somewhere like that, that's, that's not quite fair, is it? It's not fair, no. And we're looking at we're looking at worlds apart, nineteen fifteen to nineteen sixteen. Um, obviously, what's happening is so you know your tranches of new army men, K one, K two, K three, etc. The pals are part of that sort of K three, K four area. So what what we're looking at is we're seeing men who are going through the training system at home, getting ready to go 
you get lots of fanfare. There were records, you know, the arrival of Kitchener's army in France and the cheering as men are, you know, disappearing overseas and all of that stuff. And they arrive again in a similar way. All the memoirs are describing this about how, you know, when they arrive, how they're, how they're received. Those men, of course, have gone through the position where the, their, all their makeshift arms and makeshift uniforms have been replaced by khaki. They've been replaced by the, the obviously, the short magazine, the Enfield Rifle, uh, arguably the best rifle for its type in the trenches. And I think all of those men understand what a bayonet's for. They've been through the whole deal, absolutely, for sure. So I think, I think they're going in tranches. They're arriving in France in tranches. They're being assigned to divisions, as you say, Andy. And those divisions, therefore, are being assigned to armies or corps, and they're being assigned to the sectors. The thing with it is that they will have they've gone through their training they've gone through the base training and they've gone into the trenches for acclimatization so they are you can imagine that situation now i'm a bit shorter than you are andy so you um i think me and alex will probably Isn't everyone but having, <laughs> that's right but not have our heads shut off you probably wouldn't have lasted uh, um, yeah, I think if I'm if I'm a divisional like a commander or a brigade commander, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm making sure right, I want I want my trenches seven and a half foot deep, lads. Get busy. Exactly. <laughs> or you're Billy Congreve, you're going to be a brigade major because you're tall and you'll get out of the way that way. Imposing. And I think, but I think the thing with it is just there's a serious point to this, which is as as we all know in our studies of the First World War, that the the thing about trench warfare is most people, most people with a family. A uh, member who was in that army, you know, in in France or wherever it was, think that they're wounded in a battle, or they were killed. You know, if they've got some casualty in their family, they were killed in a battle. I, I'm not saying the vast majority, but a large proportion of those men are wounded or lost through the drip, drip, drip of casualties from shell fire, or you know, uh, targeting a latrine, or the fact that, like our, our just a joke before, the fact that you being taller than me might just control but your steel helmet just sticks above the parapet just that much so that a sniper can take you out whereas I, mine would be below it and and i think it's this really random vagaries of this and so these men who have been through all the training and have been through all of the stuff on the base and have been you know they're starting to be acclimatized to it and realize that they're going to have to face that ultimate challenge of of shell fire of doing something with the rifle and all the rest of that will be then filtered in to the trenches. And as they go into that, they'll be, you know, at night um, changing, if you like, you know, doing that changeover where one battalion goes out and another one comes in. And as they come through there, they're being, you know, they're trying to be acclimatized. They're getting a sense of what trench warfare is. The fact that they will lose their their comrades, people that they serve with, joined with, and whatever, their very side, uh, this this is starting to make it very very stark and very very real. And I think that's why the acclimatization thing, which is a, which is taking place before the Battle of the Somme, is a very very significant one. You know, it's an important thing. It's not like the um, you know those divisions that went into Luce that had no idea what was going on. These are men who, at very least, had seen what it was like to be in a trench and understand the need for doing things like repairing the trenches and watching out for low-hanging uh, wire and low parapets and all the rest of that. So that's the first stage. They probably also, as you rightly say, would have seen their enemy. You know, they would have seen the prisoners coming back. They would have known what they faced. We realized they were men just the same as they were. 
um, and they would have seen perhaps or expected that they weren't supermen. They were uh, just the same as they were. And I think, again, that would that element of acclimatization would help them because uh, they're realizing there's no escape from this. We are going up the sharp end and we're going to face this. And so the PALS battalions, remember what we talked about earlier, the PALS battalions are men derived from the uh, the commercial classes, you know, apart from the Atkinson PALS. We're talking about, you know, the Liverpool PALS, Manchester PALS, um, you know, the Leeds PALS, all of these ones that are seeing action on the first day of the Battle of the Somme are men who were derived from the city classes who wore a boater. Uh, and went to work in an office before they were then engaging in a uh, war situation. Incredible to think. It's, it's amazing. So uh, what we want to do is take these guys up to 7.29 in the morning on, well, broadly, because there's a mine at one end and we know that, but broadly speaking, take these guys up to 1st of July. And what, what's the journey to the line like and how are they feeling so I think it's it's really interesting because we've got a we've got a sense of the Battle of the Somme from the film The Battle of the Somme, mm-hmm. and what's really significant about that? Obviously, those are curated images, and also a number of them are, well, quite a lot of them are, of course, um, set up. But that being said, they all they are all men who are in that particular area, and they are all men who are going to face that particular battle. So you can imagine what's happening. So these men are going to be uh, put into the line and they're going to be expected to, uh, to take on all of the standard considerations of that line, you know, the way in which they would stand to at night and stand to in the morning. There would be a rhythm towards that. So they're getting a sense of what's going on there for them. So the journey to the line was uh, significant from the minute that they walked into it. They then enter into this new rhythm of life where they are, you know, ensuring that there is uh, at stand to at night and in the morning that there is no chance of enemy attack. They're facing the an enemy that they can't see at a distance. They're looking over a landscape of which is of great beauty. And I think this is the same. Anybody that has gone on a battlefield tour or has visited those places cannot fail to be struck by the beauty of that landscape. And the, the, therefore, the ultimate tragedy of it. Um, you go to somewhere like the, uh, you know, the, you go to the Somme and you come from somewhere like Sussex, you're going to be seeing similar kind of downlands. Now, I'm a northern land, so for me, a downland, what's a downland? I don't know, what's chalk? Never heard of it before. But when you, when you come and look at those things and you are from those areas, you must feel strongly a sense of community with that landscape um, because it isn't destroyed at that point it is it isn't like the moon landscape that we expect this goes back to my geology work a lot of people expect the first world war to be like a devastated landscape it's not like that in 19 1st of july 1916 yes it's a battle area yes there are shell holes but it's not a devastated landscape it's a landscape still with some element of um you know of the beauty of the landscape there are skylarks in the uh, flying high in the morning, which has becomes quite an important part of our vision of the first day of the Battle of the Sun. And so as you're getting up to that, you are, you're then starting to be, to be prepared, ready for uh, combat. So, you know, you need to make sure that you are equipped to, to go over the top. And they, 
of course, we're equipped with a variety of different uh, equipments. Um, there's a lot of discussion. It's an old debate now about the weight of the of the, the average man carries. I think I think again, this is a bit of a misnomer. Um, you can look at any amount of weight, but you can think about the combat soldiers throughout history. They carry about the same amount of weight, and it's distributed around their body. That weight we're talking about is their uniform and their rifle, their steel helmet on top of them, as well as anything else that they're carrying with them. And so the men who were getting prepared for action had a number of things. They had battle order, so that means they didn't have to carry a huge big pack at a small one. They had some extra grenades, they had some extra ammunition. They, some of them carried a spade or a pick. Um, they were they carried their rifle, and so they were they were all getting prepared for that action, getting ready to go over the top, which is a phraseology that we're used to now. They used it then. They used over the bags as well, or, or hop over, or jump over. These are the phrases. I talked about the slang that was developed by the British soldier. This is part of that. You know, the it kind of means launching yourself out over the top, um, which was really significant. Now, one of the things that we know about the first day of the Battle of the Somme is the is the ultimate tragedy of, of some of those units that didn't get very far. But it also derives from the fact that some commanders were more savvy and understood that. If you have a no man's land of great distance between your trench and the Germans across the way, and you have to go through all the wire, which you would hope was cut, and all of those things which are avidly discussed about the Somme, you've got a huge distance to travel. But if you can get yourself into no man's land, um, and, you know, into a position where you don't have to go over the top, um, then, and that's what's happening with the, you know, the 18th Division uh, further to the south in the Somme, you're, you're looking at having the opportunity to cross no man's land quicker. Whereas in the north of Sir, you didn't have that. You had to cross a big old bit of no man's land. And you had, therefore, when you went over the top on that 729, you were facing those Germans who had, of course, come out of their deep dugouts, how dastardly often, of course, they're going to have deep dugouts, and are going to be firing uh, guns at you as you proceed across no man's land. It's an incredible prospect. You've got there's there's a bit of a duality of the of the first day of the Somme, isn't there? Because there there is some success, and maybe against the odds, it's 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 new army, it's Kitchener army um, d divisions in the south, 18th and 30th division that actually do pretty well, and and 36th division, the Ulster division, mm. you initially do well, and and then it's the counterattacks that rather do for them. But they they you you see kind of regular army divisions kind of interspersed along the line. Uh, as well so in the in the north you do have 29th and 4th division both regular uh, yes. and then further south 7th and 8th division are, are, are down there was there maybe a suspicion that maybe the new new army divisions weren't quite as reliable and the feeling was there needed to be regular units dotted in amongst them or is it just how it how it fell no they i think it's a deliberate uh, idea of having having strengthening uh, i mean if you look at um, slightly uh, obscure analogy but if, if you look at d day you understand the way in which um, that the commandos and the various special forces and the paratroopers in particular were there to secure that particular sector to allow the the men uh, the divisions in between them then to to attack unheeded now, i'm not saying it's exactly the same principle here but Clearly, you, you want to make sure that you have the opportunity to send in experienced troops with, who are therefore not going to be bunched together, but they're going to be separating out amongst the inexperienced troops. And I think it's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's um, 
suggesting it's an unreliable, they're unreliable. It's just, it, it's, it's common sense that you would make sure that you didn't bunch them all together and you are allowing, you know, regulars and, uh, and new army to, to fight alongside each other and to progress. And I think it does, as you, you rightly say, and we've seen different uh, approaches there, and that's probably down to command, um, commander control. And it's also down to particular aspects of the, of the topography uh, as well. And uh, certainly that's the case for the 29th Division. You know, those guys were in no man's land. You know, they were out in the sunken lane. Uh, and yet they, one of the problems they had was because of the, you know, the explosion of, of Hawthorne Ridge uh, early and the warning and all of the panoply of stuff that goes with, with the Somme. So, you know, they're regular troops. They've also been through hell on earth in Gallipoli. So, you know, these guys have arrived into the, yet another hell on earth situation. And I think when you look at the 18th, you definitely do see the, um, the power of the, of the generals who are saying, right, we really need to make sure that we can, you know, we're in a position to push forward. And that's why down in the south, there was greater success. And it is tougher not to crack in the north. The topography was such that it was a really tough thing. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for coming on to give us an overview of, I just, it's brilliant that rather than talking about the battle again, what we've done is explain who these guys were waiting, or a, a bulk of these guys were waiting to go over the top, these everymen that rushed to enlist in 14. I think what your book does is a really, it's a, a necessary link to show you how those men sort of either dribbling in or rushing in for those three weeks where they were really rushing in uh, to join the army in 1914 and join Kitchener's army, how they ended up facing the Battle of the Somme. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Very Before much. you go, just tell everyone about the next book because it's stunning. Thank you. Well, uh, the book that we've just been talking about was Kitchen's Mob. It's by me and Chris Foster, who's working on the, uh, the photographs. But the next book is all about Princess Mary's gift to the troops in 1914. And it is the first time, and I'm, I'm astounded that I'm saying it's the first time that this story's been told. And it also has a direct link with what we've been talking about, because these men were ultimately eligible to receive one of these gifts because these are these little tins that everyone goes for on ebay little beautiful brass tins of which two and a half million were produced you're never going to run out of them uh they're an incredible piece of art they're an incredible uh reflection of the war in 1914 and they have a huge bit of memory and what i like about it is that people keep knickknacks in them now and the soldiers of the time and people also kept knickknacks in them i've talked with people serving today who received something similar in 2014, and they keep their knickknacks in them. So these little uh, boxes have greater meaning, and I've told the story for the first time. It's out there. It's uh, it's at the moment an Indiegogo um, thing, which you can go on Indiegogo.com, and you can see it, Princess Mary's gift in. This is to make sure that you know it's out there, but it it will be out there and available very soon, sometime in the summer. And I'm looking forward immensely to boring the pants off everybody about it forever. Yeah. come back and do a whole show about the tin how many hours have you got? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. cool thanks for having me you can help us at history hack by joining us via patreon it takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work off 
quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well, and you could be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.